Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. church. Excited to be here with you uh, today, this Sunday. If you're a guest in the house, welcome. My name is Corey. I'm one of the uh, staff pastors as well. I get to be your teaching pastor uh, for a couple of weeks here. And so, uh, man, this is exciting, yeah? It's fun. Long. This is exciting, yeah? There's coffee. There's got to be coffee somewhere in this new building. You all can have it. And last week was an emotional whirlwind, felt like emotional whiplash uh, for me a little bit. Five years of casting vision and calling and raising money and uh, all the things it takes to be able to do this uh, sort of a thing. And so to getting to come up and read a letter even from Pastor Sherman last week, if you were here for that, it was just uh, an incredible uh, experience for me, super fun uh, to get to be here. I'm excited to get to uh, preach. Let me uh, first, let me pray and just kind of settle in, um, settle us into Psalm uh, 85. Let me pray and then I'll kick us off with an illustration to explain the text. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for this opportunity to come, God. We know, uh, as we were reminded last week, that uh, the acquisition of a, a new building, new church building, new space uh, does not mean that we have arrived in any way, shape, or form, Lord. Uh, Sunday is incredible. Uh, having a new building uh, is incredible. Uh, and at the same time, we could continue being the church as we were without any of this. Uh, We were built, God, to live apart from uh, a Sunday Sunday gathering, a worship service. Uh, We can do it in many, many different ways, God. In our culture, this is appropriate and good and right uh, and holy, Lord. And so may we sit in here today, stand in here uh, today, God, with an incredible amount of reverence for you. Uh, God, thank you for being a God that allows us, desires us, invites us to come back to the throne room of grace again and again. So God, as we get into this text, Lord, I pray that you would expose us, God, that you would just open up our chest cavities and lay us bare before one another. God, may the word of God, the gospel, take a root in us, God. May we look, speak, feel, think differently today when we leave. God, as we are being formed and reformed in this room, may we then go out into our culture and form and reform uh, those whom we get to spend every day with. God, help us to point to someone better than ourselves in our everyday life, uh, that someone is Jesus, Lord. Thank you for your invitation. All God's people said, amen and amen. Well, welcome uh, back, second week of Advent. Just real quickly, let me remind you, Advent means uh, to wait. It means to long. It means to hope for something in the future. We are in a season of Advent, if you remember, last week I talked a little bit about Israel, and Israel was in their first season, or the first season of Advent, where they were longing for this Messiah to come, this to come and to save them and to redeem them. I then said that we're now in a season of Advent, where we're longing for this Messiah's second coming. We know him to be Jesus Christ. We have all of his promises. We spent 22 weeks in the book of Revelation uh, just prior to this series, didn't we? Just looking at the promises of God and the reality that he will, in fact, come back and do all that he ever promised that he would do, that all of our yes and amens are found in Jesus. Yes. 
And so we know he's coming. We're in a season of Advent, and so we are longing, we are waiting. And so this text that we're going to get in today, Psalm 85, uh, is a psalm of revival. And what we're going to see here is the psalmist is adventing revival. He's adventing, he's waiting, he's longing, he's craving, he's looking forward to something new, something better, someone new and someone better. And he's inviting us alongside him uh, to experience it with him. And so one of my best friends in the world, uh, I mention him a lot. If you've been at Heights for more than six months, you've heard me talk to him. My childhood uh, best friends is one of the top wood kiln firers in the world. He's a ceramicist. And what that means is they build these ovens, these big ovens into the ground and they put pottery in there of all different types and certain types of glaze. And then they have to live in the woods, literally, and they have to stoke the fire for seven straight days to be able to get the temperature up to where it's supposed to be, to make the pot kind of form the way that they want it to be and, or look and feel the way they want it to look and all these different things. And so anyway, he's one of the best, like top three wood kiln firers in the whole entire world. He's super cool uh, individual. He gave me a beautiful piece of pottery uh, whenever we had Emma nine years ago. He had a, a piece of pottery he had thrown. He made it into the Louisville Art Museum. 10,000 uh, clay artists entered into, the, entered into it. He got into that um, museum, got into that show. And not only that, but they put his beautiful piece of pottery on the banner that hangs like 30 feet outside of the museum to kind of announce to the world that this is the show. The show is coming. It's his work. Um, he gave me that piece when we had Emma. And so when we had Emma, I was like, oh dear, we got a baby now. What do I do? I don't know what to do. And so I put it out in the garage. I was like, we're going to keep it safe. I put it in the garage. I turned like this to pick something up and hit it with my back foot. Shatters all over my garage. And I was like, no, like, no, how could I? So I call him and I'm like, bro, I'm horrified by what just happened. I broke the pot that you gave me, broke the vase that you give me. And he just said to me very calmly, oh, that's what pots do, bro. They break. And I was like, huh, that was much easier than I thought. So then he gave me another piece of pottery. Let me show a picture of this next piece of pottery that I've kept with me. Not that one, the one before that one. There it is. That's this week. He gave me another piece of pottery, and I shattered it this week. I shattered his work. This piece, if you don't feel bad enough for me, uh, just a little insider. He got into Vogue magazine in the last couple of weeks. It's priced somewhere around $4,000. Shattered it. <laughs> just barely hit my shelf. I didn't even consider it as an option that it was going to break. Hit the shelf. And all of a sudden, this thing just explodes in my office all over. And I was like, no! I'm sure the staff had to think I was finally having a melted down. They've been waiting on it for years. It came this week. And so I call him, and I was like, bro, I'm mortified. I sent him a puke emoji. I was like, I'm so sorry. I could puke, dude. I shattered the pot that you gave me. And he very calmly said to me, hey, bro, that's what pots do. They break. I got just the one for you. I already got it picked out for you. And then he sent me a picture of the one that, if you throw it back up for me, Debbie, this piece right here. That has liquid gold infused <laughs> in the pot. Dripped liquid gold. That's what the front of that piece of pottery is. If history serves, how do you think it's going to turn out for me, church? And how do you think he'll respond? That's what pots do. Pots break. I think that is such a beautiful picture of 
revival for us today. That there is this reality where we have this good father who we get to come back to time and time and time again, broken as we are, church. And he just looks at us and he goes, that's what I expected. That's why I sent my son. That's why I've done all the things that I've done so that you could come back to me in this moment and I could meet you face to face again and just say, of course you come to me broken. And I know just the thing to give you. I've already got it sitting on the shelf. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy upon mercy upon mercy. And what are we gonna do? We're gonna break the pot, aren't we? And we get to go back to him again and what is he gonna say? I got just the thing. More and more and more and more. This is a picture of revival. The definition I have for you for revival for the note taker is this, to refresh, to restore, to reinvigorate, to be made alive. Ray Ortland, uh, pastor in Acts 29 down in, I think, Nashville, Tennessee, kind of helped me with this definition. Revival is to refresh, to restore, to reinvigorate, to be made alive. And so just to be clear, some kind of clarifying things for you. Revival, it happens once, but then for the Christian, I would argue that it continues to happen again and again and again. It's not that you can be saved and then lose your salvation and be saved and lose your salvation. That's not what I mean. What I do mean is you come to Christ, you cry out his name, and then he redeems you, he saves you, he rejuvenates you, he makes you alive. Holy Spirit comes in, takes up residence. You're a new man, new woman, old man, old woman has Died, And then we go back to him again and again and again and again. And so salvation happens once, but I would argue then that there's a little word in there called sanctification that happens over and over and over again. Is it too early to teach a little systematic theology this morning? Have you had some coffee? Are we good? Can you handle it? Week two, okay? The guest is like, what is this guy getting into? There's something called sanctification. Somebody say sanctification. Sanctification. This is a theological term that helps us understand Psalm 85, right? God doesn't give you theology to save you. He gives you theology to help you understand what the heck happened to you when you got saved. Amen? And so there's sanctification. There's two different ways to think about sanctification. One is, for the note taker, positional sanctification. There's positional Sanctification. It means that you were guilty. The gospel story, church, as Pastor Jeff just led us through, is that you were born into and under the weight of sin and death. You were born in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. Simultaneously, you were born under and in the curse of Adam and Eve, right? You don't do bad things and that makes you a sinner. That's not the gospel. The gospel is you were created in the image of God. Your original parents rebelled against God. You take upon you now that curse in birth. You're born into sin. You are born a sinner. Did you teach your two-year-old to say mine? Mine, 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 no. Did you teach your two-year-old to hit you and slap you and throw things? No, right? It's good, meaningly well parents. We try not to do that, yeah? And yet, for those of you who have kids, they're little demons, amen? They're little demonic monsters sometimes, aren't they? You didn't teach that. And so they are, why? Because they were born into and under the curse and the weight of sin from our original parents. That means you were born dead, but positional sanctification is whenever the Father gives you grace and you turn in faith and you look at Jesus and you go, I need you. You don't do that on your own. You only do that because God the Father has given you the grace to turn and finally see who Jesus is and what Jesus can do. And in that moment, you are, boom, justified is what that's called. He has you dead to rights, 100% guilty, sitting in the courtroom. You're guilty. 
treason, murder, adultery, all of it is written on you. And this Jesus walks in and he says, hey, your honor, hey, dad, I'm going to take all of the weight of every bit of justice that they deserve into myself, onto myself for them. They're not guilty, even though they were quite often very, very, very much guilty. Yes, that's the gospel. You still tracking with me? Positional sanctification. You are positionally, spiritually sanctified, saved, redeemed. Listen, revived in that moment. New life has been given to you. Regeneration has been given. The second part of sanctification then is progressive sanctification. Not progressive in the way that the culture uses the term progressive, which is actually very much so regressive, not progressive, but that's a sermon for another day. This is progressive sanctification. This is the process now of becoming holy. It's the process, stay with me, it's the process of becoming physically how the Father sees you spiritually. It is the process of physically looking the way God already sees you spiritually. Once you are in Christ, church, he sees you in full glory, even though you act a fool, right? I yelled this week at my eight-year-olds as if I were, in fact, an eight-year-old myself, yes? Anyone else been there with me, right? I'm like, why can't you stop yelling? Dang it! You know, it's like, right? And so progressive sanctification is the process of becoming holy. And so God gives us things like spiritual disciplines, reading the Bible, prayer. This is why we do missional community. Those are spiritual disciplines that help shape you, help you to understand the way God actually sees you. And then whenever you get the grace of the gospel and you go, oh my gosh, I've been justified. I'm a horrific father. I'm a terrible husband at times. I'm a mediocre employee. I'm judgmental. I'm hateful. I'm angry. I'm all these things. And in the midst of those moments, Father, you look at me through the lens of Jesus and you go, you're mine. Oh gosh, that invites in us. It invokes in us what? Revival. We go, okay, God, you are the only one who will ever treat me like that. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. So there's positional sanctification and then there is progressive sanctification. I share that because you have to understand revival happens once for sure, right? If you are not a Christian, if you're not professing faith in Jesus Christ, you are dead in your sin and trespasses, just like anyone who was outside of Christ before. It's no different. The difference, the overarching difference between a non-Christian and a Christian is that the Christian has said, I understand I was born dead. I understand I was alienated from Jesus, and Jesus took my death so he could give me revival. That's the only difference, right? Christians should never throw stones at non-believers. The only thing that makes you good Christian is Jesus. He's the only thing worth boasting in, the apostle would say, yeah? So revival happens once for sure, only through professing faith in Jesus. That's positional. And then I would say revival is a continual plea, coming back again to the Father, again and again and again, and saying, God, I have broke the pot again. I've done it again. And he just comes in and says, as sin abounds, son, as sin abounds, daughter, Grace abounds all the more. This is exactly why I died for you. So the big idea then is this. Advent reveals the need for revival. Advent reveals the need for revival. The theme for this Advent week is peace. If you want peace, church, plea for revival. Plea for revival. Advent, again, means to long, to wait, to desire, to look forward to. Revival means to rejuvenate, to be made new, to be made alive, to be restored. Advent reveals the need 
for revival. Three points by which I hope to show you. They go like this. First point, what is revival? Oh, it is the power of God. (laughs) It is the power of God. Second point is who needs revival? Surely not church folk, yeah? Oh, the people of God. Okay, got it. That's us. We are the chief among sinners, yes? How do we experience revival? Well, the Son of God. What is revival? The power of God. Who needs it? Who needs revival? The people of God. How do we experience revival? The Son of God. Psalm 85. When you're ready, say ready. What is revival? The power. Point one. Verse one goes like this. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of who? Jacob. Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all of their sin. You withdrew all of your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Verse four. Gosh, if you miss anything else, church, restore us what? Again. Again. Restore us again. He's pleading with them. He's begging with them, the psalmist is. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation or put away your wrath, put away your anger, put away your judgment towards us. All right, so we see the psalmist here, similar to last week, is looking back before he can move forward. If you were here last week and you wrote down point one in your notes, but he's looking back to Jacob, which is the same story, fits within the story of Joseph that we looked at last week. For those of you that were here, many of you were out and you were uh, sick, so let me just give you a little bit of a recap. Joseph, whom we talked about last week, was Jacob's favorite son. He's saying today, restore to us the fortunes of Jacob, just as you did with Jacob. And so Joseph's brothers did not like him, if you remember. They were crazy. They're mad at him because he's the favor. They take him. They sell him into slavery. Jacob or Joseph ends up making his way up to being the second in command, and he ends up saving Israel from a famine. So when the, the psalmist is talking about the land, you restored the land, he's making reference to that. You have restored the land. You have done this before, just as you've done this before. So also, could you do it again? And so Joseph was, uh, had saved Israel from a famine. And whenever Joseph saved Israel from the famine, it allowed all the brothers and Jacob to come back under kind of his headship and authority. In so doing, restoring the fortunes of Jacob. You still with me this morning? I know it's a lot of words and it's a little bit early in the morning. But Joseph's work is what restored Jacob, and the psalmist is saying here, you did that. That's what you did. You're the sovereign God. You're the shepherd. You set up on the throne. You're the one that did that. And so there's all these declarative statements he makes, like you forgave the iniquity, and you withdrew your wrath, and you turned from anger. If we were reading the New Testament, verse four would say, therefore, before it, but it's a psalm. He says, therefore, you must restore us again. The psalmist is pleading. He's begging. He's coming to him again. He's saying, God, we've broke it again. But we've seen you. We know what you can do. We've seen your favor over Israel and over the people. I want you to think about this a little bit more like this. Dang. Thus saith the Lord, bro. Thus saith the Lord. Thank you, Mark. Let's go. What is revival? <laughs> That's a, man, I wish I would have hit that right when they fell. That would have been, dang, so timely. That's it, man. We don't need it. What is revival, church? Like, this is revival. What is being talked about here in the text? I want you to think about Jacob with me for just a moment. He is the father of Joseph, but Jacob, church, was a total mess. I mean, this dude, you'd be embarrassed. You should be, in some ways, embarrassed if you were in your family, were it not for the whole gospel. Jacob is one of the patriarchs 
of our faith. Keep that in mind, okay? The next time you feel like being real judgmental towards someone else in your family or in your circle, uh, you came from Jacob, okay? Just keep that in mind for what I'm about to tell you. Jacob was literally called the deceiver. He was a horrific liar. Jacob was a terrible husband, by the way. He was a total coward. He allowed everyone in his family to kind of run him over. Jacob had two wives and two girlfriends, all right? That don't go well for anybody. You with me? And yet this is what we see. To be clear, anytime you see polygamy in the Bible, it goes very, very badly. And it does not go well for him. His wives and girlfriends were so jacked up and dysfunctional, they literally start having birthing wars. Like, I bet I can outbirth you. Like, nah, uh watch this. Get over here, Jacob. Like, they're, they're literally having birthing wars. They're trying to feed Jacob fruit that they thought would actually make him more fertile and be able to perform better. If you really, this ain't the kid's version, church. This is the real deal, okay? This is what's actually happening. In the text, they're literally, it's like if MTV came out with a new TV show, it would be this, Birthing Wars, <laughs> brought to you by the Kardashians, you know, like he knows, this is it. And so not only those, the psalmist recalling the restoration of the land, but also the restoration of Jacob, right? And if you know the story of Jacob, Jacob wrestled with God and God allowed Jacob victory, right? And so Jacob, think about that, Jacob, of all people, wrestled with the Lord, and the Lord allowed him to win. He changes his name to Israel. And so while the psalmist is talking about Israel, he's also talking about Israel, the person. And he's saying, you have brought revival to the land of Israel. Yes and amen. But you've also brought revival to the person Israel, Jacob. And in there, there's good news for us, church, because it reveals to us that the primary way that God brings revival to the land is first through his people. And there is no one in this room that can out the cross of Jesus Christ. Jacob, our original patriarch father, has been, experiences redemption. And so the psalmist is saying, you, Lord, you forgave the iniquity of Jacob, and you withdrew your wrath from Jacob, and you turned your anger from Jacob. Therefore, you must do it again. You got to do it again. He's coming back again. He's saying, revive us, O God. Reinvigorate us, O God. Give us new life. We know you're capable of doing it. This is what we should be adventing, church. This is what we should be longing for, waiting for, looking forward out into the distance for all the time. Revival. Not just once, but forevermore. The psalmist is simply acknowledging the powerful work of God. Uh, Leonard Ravenhill, if you've ever read the book, Why Revival Tarries, is an incredible good book, fun little book uh, to read. Leonard Ravenhill uh, says this in Why Revival Tarries. I believe it'll be on the screen for you. He says, the greatest miracle that God can do today is take an unholy man out of an unholy world and make him holy. Then put him back in that unholy world and keep him holy in it. That is sanctification. The greatest miracle that God can do today is to take an unholy man out of an unholy world and make him holy, and then put him back into an unholy world and keep him that way. Good night. That is the power of God that we get to see on display whenever those come to faith. It's the power of God that we see on display whenever we actually lay down a sin and start walking in righteousness. It's the power. I need you to know, church, it is the power of God on display for the millisecond of time that you experience where you actually want to go to your Bible. That's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that you 
want to engage. It is only by the power of the Holy Spirit, the very power of God himself that takes up residence in you that would ever lead you to even want to pray to him. This is not your natural disposition. It is only the disposition that comes whenever God has revived your identity and made you new. And it is only by the power of God that that happens. And so let's let the story of Jacob teach us here for a moment. Let me come back to a statement I got ahead of myself a minute ago. Hear, hear the word of God. You cannot, you cannot outsend the cross of Jesus Christ. I know the stories that exist in this room. I know the history that exists in many of you in this room. Many of you come to Heights because through your missional communities, you feel known. We spend a lot of time talking about stories and the dysfunction that has come therein and the results and the effects of sin in our lives. We're a very transparent church. We know each other, yeah? We feel known here, yes? And so for those of you, though, who've come in and who've still sat under the weight and heard the gospel from beloved brothers and sisters every day for weeks on time, for seasons at a time, those of you who still think, I don't know, man, I think I'm still a little too far gone, let me reiterate, you cannot out the cross of Christ. Dude, if Jacob can be saved, literally anybody can be saved, right? Jesus is in the business of making the unholy holy and then keeping them that way. Not based off your actions, church. Not because you're good enough. Not because you cleaned yourself up. Not because you measured up. Not because you read your Bible app on your way to work because you were running late. You weren't just texting and driving. You're reading Bible and driving. It's even more dangerous. Right? It's not what redeemed you. It's not what restored you. Jesus did. Right? He positionally sanctified you, looked at you in your brokenness, living in a cesspool of your own dysfunction and mess, and said, in the midst of all of that, you're mine. And I'm going to keep you that way by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's some gifts. Here's the word. Here's prayer. Here's community. Walk it out. And it will continue to reveal to you the way that I actually already see you. That is the gospel. So who needs this revival? Surely it's just non-Christians, right? Maybe the skeptics need revival. Surely not the people of God, huh? Of which we are the most jacked up, yeah? Who needs this revival? The people of God. Point number two, if you're taking notes. Who needs revival? The people of God. Verse five. Will you be angry with us forever? I love the questions that come in the Psalms. They help us learn how to pray, don't they? Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Well, here it is again, verse six. Will you not revive us what? Again and again and again. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Keep in mind, this is the people of God pleading here. Will you not revive us? Will you not show us your face? Will you not grant us again salvation? Will you not do, fix the land, make pure the land as you did once before? Verse eight, let me hear what, the God, what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, to those who have been set apart, to those who have been sanctified, to those who have been made holy is what that word saint means in the Hebrew. But let them not turn back, insinuating what? They're gonna do what? They're going to go against them again, aren't they? They're going to need to come back here again, aren't they? Let them not turn back to folly or better place than the Hebrew complacency. Come to us, Lord. Revive us again, O oh God. Give us salvation, God, lest we turn to complacency again and again. Who needs revival, church? The people of God need revival. We need revival, church. I don't, I don't mean we got all this land out here, so I'm going to go put a tent up outside, tent revival. I ain't talking about that. If somebody wants to run that show, you can do that, okay? 
I'm talking about a real Holy Spirit-filled rejuvenation. Continual restoration and new life. Think about this. We've already looked at Jacob, dysfunctional mess that he is. And that's just one misfit in our family tree, yeah? Think about this for just a minute. Father Abraham that our kids sing about. Had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, you know. Gave his wife up, gave Nana up for prostitution. Not just once, but twice. That's right. Father Abraham gives up his wife to prostitute her out out of fear. Your kids are going to sing about him at some point in the church. <laughs> Auntie Rahab. Auntie Rahab. Who was Rahab? Somebody help me out. I forgot. Rahab's a prostitute that saves Israel. You don't think she needed a little revival? She brought revival, didn't she? Then she marries Boaz, good faithful man, the word says, and from his bloodline comes King David. King David is a total mess, right? The, the messianic figure of the Old Testament, King David, what does he do? He sleeps with another man's wife and then has that dude killed, loses a child, and then commits treason. Oh my God, what would culture do to him today? This man that is in our tree. You don't think maybe he needed a little revival? King David? And yet, listen to this. This camp out there, because that one's a, a little bit easier. Murderous adulterer, King David. And at the same time, the Bible says, a man after God's own heart. How is that possible? Well, it's because he has been positionally saved and redeemed by a loving father. And even in the midst of his dysfunction, seen as righteous. Right? He experienced Revival, once, saved, professes faith in Yahweh, his God. And because Yahweh is good and right and perfect, puts his identity on King David, even in the midst of his brokenness, is still seen the way God sees him at the moment he came to faith. That is sanctification. That's what has happened. He was revived once, and oh my, the Psalms are just full of him pleading for revival, aren't they? We're going to read Psalm 51, 1 through 12. Not even the whole thing. Just let me read it over you. This is what it looks like, church, to be a man or woman of God in desperate need for revival. Psalm 51 says, have mercy on me, God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my sin, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, from my sin. Cleanse me from my sin. There's a plea here, isn't there? He's not like, oh, did it again. What is he doing? He's pleading with the Father. Verse three, for I know my transgressions. I'm ever aware and my sin is ever before me. I see it. I know. Verse four, oh my gosh, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He doesn't say I sinned against the kids or I sinned against my spouse or I sinned against my neighbor. He says, no, no, no. In sin, Lord, you, you're the one that I have sinned against and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Verse five, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my, brother, my mother conceive me. I was born into this mess, Lord. Help me, bring revival. Verse six, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me Hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Can anybody relate? Hide your face far from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. 
Like this is a man, literally, he pinned this after Nathan came to him and said, you're an adulterous murderer. And he, and he runs, and where does he run to, man? He runs to the Father. He runs to a good and loving and gracious God. What does he beg for? Does he say, fix my marriage? Oh, Lord, what are my kids gonna think? Help me be a better dad. Help me be a better king. Help me be a better husband. Help me be a... No, he doesn't pray for his circumstance at all. What does he pray for? Revival. New identity. Fall afresh on me, Lord. Remove my iniquities from you, God. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Gosh, this is the Lord's anointed church. The second king of Israel, the one who is a man after God's very own heart, and he is in need of revival. How much more are we? How much more are we? Church, do you advent revival? Do you long for, wait for, crave, desire, aspire to be made alive? Not just once, man, but again and again and again. I would ask the question, when is the last time you begged for revival? Revival first, maybe for your neighbor, that they might come to faith in Christ. But then revival for yourself, just again and again. Let me ask you another question too. Do you believe that God is powerful enough to revive you? Do you believe that God is powerful enough to restore your character, to continue to increase you in identity and godliness, hopefulness, holiness? Let me ask, do you believe that this is the same God that can restore you? Do you think he's the same God that has the power to revive your enemies? Does he have the power to revive those whom you think are less than you? those whom you find yourself judging more often than not? Do you believe that this is the same God of revival? Do you believe that he's a God that whenever you do continue to fall short, that you can come back to him just again and again and again and again, and his mercies are new and newer and newer and newer and sufficient enough to keep you? Can you go back to him again, church, and say, I broke the pot again? Do you believe that he'll look at you and go, I have just the one for you. As a matter of fact, I broke him for you, didn't he? Listen, no one can out the cross of Christ. This is the overarching takeaway from this portion of the scriptures. And so I would say this, Christian, at some point, you have to stop using the very breath in your lungs and vocal cords that the almighty powerful gave you. You have to stop using those to dismantle the power of the cross. Whenever we look at the cross of Jesus and we think, I'll never be set free from this sin. Or God, you could never redeem this individual. Or whenever that same woman walks into your same missional community, she's dealing with the same thing again. And you look at her and you go, oh, here we go again. Oh, she's back again. She's back at it again. She backslid again. We've had this conversation. We've already talked about this. When we do that, Christians, specifically to Christians, when we use the very power that God has given us in our breath and in our lungs and our vocal cords, to look at someone who we feel, who's clearly wrestling, and we go, here's what they hear. The cross isn't powerful enough for you. There's not enough power in it to save you. You're not worth redeeming. You're irredeemable. And yet there's this God here who's found in the Psalms, and he says, no, this is exactly why I died. This is what I came for. This is what I'm here to do. I am the God of revival. Not so that we would look at someone and say the cross is insufficient for you, but rather so we would look at them again as men and women who've experienced revival and go, oh, you gotta get a taste. 
You got to see I'm there with you. I was right there with you, going through the same things as you. And he redeemed me, and he revived me. Oh, you got to meet this Jesus. Let me remind him for you. Here's the deal. If you share the gospel with someone, and you don't feel like they're hearing you, just say it for yourself. Just remind yourself of the gospel so that you can find grace and mercy for that person. I'm just tired of Christians looking at people who are seeking the Lord and telling them, there's nothing here for you. And we do it all the time. Your disbelief in that moment actually reveals your need for revival, not theirs. When you look at someone who's in a struggle and you think the cross isn't powerful enough to redeem, it reveals you need revival, not so much them. Maybe it's your lack of faith in the gospel in that moment that isn't penetrating what they need. Just to be clear, and with that being said, let me make this straight. I feel like I give all these caveats now. Just to be clear, with that being said, let me make this straight. To proclaim Jesus and to do nothing is not evidence of revival. And so there is a reality. I got Pastor David looking at me. I know what he's thinking. I'm going to just speak on your behalf, brother. Right? If you profess faith in Jesus and you find yourself time and time and time and time again never growing, Ne- never excelling, never moving in holiness, never growing in godliness, not pursuing God's word, not walking in prayer, not being in missional community, not pursuing the good gifts that God has given to sanctify you, but you profess Jesus and you do nothing, you've not experienced revival. I would say he's got you dead to rights in the courtroom still. But there is this good Jesus that walks in and says, it's not about your works. I'm not being legalistic. It's not about your works. It's about my work in your place as your substitute, and I've given you all these good gifts, and the evidence is there. If you're not using the good gifts to experience revival, you might not have ever experienced it. Does that clear that up? Okay, thank you. Yeah, good. Sounds good. Sounds great. Yeah. And so in that, church, it's, it's not just I profess faith in Jesus and do nothing, but no, whenever I get a picture of the gospel, and I see Jesus, and I see my own dysfunction, and my own sin, and my own brokenness, and we see the cross literally towering over everything else. It is the beauty of the cross that reminds me we can come back to him again, and again, and again, and again. Listen, never be shameful of your pursuit of Jesus. Don't let a Christian disgruntle you from pursuing the cross of Christ. Romans 8, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And some of your struggles might last an hour. Some of them, talked to someone earlier, might be a season. It might be a season of dysfunction, a season of brokenness. It might feel like every day of your life, you're literally crawling with your fingernails to get to the cross. I would say, brother and sister, just keep crawling. Just keep pushing towards him. And he's there and he's gonna say, hey, your situation, brother, your situation, sister, never determined my proximity. I was always right there. This is why he's come, church, not to revive us once, but to revive us again and again and again. It is the people of God, family, that need this revival. How do we find this revival? How do we find this revival? Oh, and the Son of God. How do we experience revival? It is the Son of God. Verse 10 says this, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace, they kiss each other. Think about this imagery for a minute. And only a poet can clearly explain the attributes of God. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Dude, peace, they kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, verse 11. Faithfulness springs up from the ground. The righteous 
Righteousness looks down from the sky, verse 12. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and he has. And our land will yield its increase, verse 13. Righteousness will go before him and make footsteps away. I literally wrote in my notes, I don't even know what to say about this. That's what I wrote. I was like, the imagery is, I mean, it's just so Jesus. Like, I want to give some, like, good, awesome gospel bridge, and, and I did, and there's this moment whenever Jesus is talking to Thomas and the book of John 14, and he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and then I was like, that's all I got. Like, I don't know what else to say. There's not much else to expound upon here, right? It, it, he's just explaining what we would know as Jesus. Now, the psalmist is writing, and he's adventing, he's longing, saying, man, I want this. This is what I want. This has been promised. It's going to come. Zion is out there, and we're headed that way, baby, and I want that. And at the same time, we know this side of the cross, this is just an explanation of who Jesus is. I mean, think about it. Verse 10, steadfast love and faithfulness meet He's eternally and perfectly faithful the whole entire time he's here. We actually get to meet this person. The very love of God walked among us in creation. Physically, incarnate Christ comes. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss one another. He's the perfect picture of righteousness. Perfectly holy. Perfectly just. Walks in perfection. He is literally the prince of peace for crying out loud. And he walks among us. Verse 12, yes, the Lord will give what is good. And he did. He gave everything that he could have ever given us so that we could experience revival. Not just once, once for the non-believer, and then again and again and again forevermore. This is what has been promised to us. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Literally, creation and culture has only gotten better and better and better since the incarnation of Christ. Verse 13, righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. This is Jesus. If, if you want to know who this Jesus is and what this Jesus has done, commit to memory verses 10 through 13. The only reason that revival is possible is because Jesus experienced death for you. Whenever he looks at his doubting apostle in John 14, he says to him, in the midst of his doubt, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. The only reason we get to experience new life is because Jesus entered into death, entered into death for us. He walked in perfection, he walked in righteousness, perfectly met and exceeded all of God's expectations that he could have ever had, something we could have never done. And then he enters into death so that we can be made new, so that we can be made alive, so that we can experience revival. He has to die so that we can be made alive. Turns out, dead people can't save themselves, right? So we need someone from outside of the system to enter into the system and redeem us and bring restoration and model righteousness and all these things. And then the only reason that we get to come before an ever eternal, omniscient, omni-powerful God is because of this Jesus. Like, do you understand to enter into the prayer closet, we should be obliterated before him because of his righteousness. Like, we deserve nothing. We don't deserve his word. We don't deserve prayer. We don't deserve any of the gifts that the Father has given us. And yet, in and through Christ, it is all ours. In grace and mercy, he gives it to us. That is the gospel, church. Like, on your best day, you're still not worthy. But Jesus is. 
And so whenever he enters into life in perfection, he goes to the cross in death, he resurrects to new life, giving us what? New life. Sends us the Holy Spirit. He is the God of revival. Not because we sing about it, but because he said so. He can revive you. He can revive your marriage. He can revive your parenting. He can revive your character, most importantly, your identity. He can fully and completely uh, rejuvenate you. Why don't you all go ahead and stand with me. Let's make this final declaration. A team can come up. Uh, hopefully you were able to grab communion cups on the way in. If you were not, there are communion cups stationed up here in the front. Uh, but next to the offering boxes, if you like to give during this time, feel free to give during this time. Every week we take communion together as a family uh, to be reminded uh, of the gospel. For some reason, Jeff, or someone misses it, some reason I miss it in a sermon, uh, communion will cover us. So I want you to think about this as we enter into this time before you start opening up those noisy packages. Let me read this over you and then share a story. 1 Corinthians 11 says this, we read it every week, not as a religious event, but as a redemptive reminder. It says this, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he again thinks he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Hear this, for as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The only way you experience revival is through death. First, death in Christ. Secondly, death to self as he makes you new, revives you anew. As you hold those communion elements in your hand, they're a representation of the gospel. Uh, the cup represents Christ's blood that was spilt on your behalf, in your place, as your substitute. That's what happened in order for righteousness to come and peace to exist. Jesus had to be broken in your place. You also then you have the small wafer that represents Christ's body that was broken in your place as your substitute. He had to be, he had to come before the Father completely undone experiencing the wrath of God, getting what we deserve so that we could experience revival. He had to die for us to get revival. This weekend I had a, let me be real honest with y'all, okay? New building, more people is not gonna change me. I had a terrible weekend. It was Andrea's birthday weekend. You would think it would be fun, and it was. There's aspects that were fun. And Friday night, I totally came undone emotionally, just all the pressure. I don't know if it was the, this building space, new people, counseling, church disciplinary stuff, whatever it was, completely came undone emotionally. I was like, I just need a minute, man. And broke. I didn't know that I was there. Apparently, I was. Uh, next day, Saturday, uh, if anybody went to the Christmas lights, the little parade we had in town, totally yelled at my kids. Anybody else this weekend so I can feel like I'm not alone? Just came undone like an eight-year-old, as I mentioned earlier, yelled at him. Don't excuse my sin. I was in sin. Uh, and so were you, actually, when you did that. So welcome to church. Um, I was in sin. I confessed to them, repented to them. Sweet Josiah, super emotional like me. He goes, Dad, sometimes you just got to let it out. I forgive you. And I was like, oh, it just makes it worse, you know. Um, but it's true, you know. So I'm pleading with God, literally just even in the shower this morning, just like, God, like, help me believe this to be true before I have to get up. And on one hand, I do because I went back to him again and again and again and again. And then 
as I was going to pick up coffee for the staff, I pulled into the parking lot, and on the back of this car, it said, born out of revival. And I thought, I don't do all signs and symbols, you know, but I was like, that was from Jesus. And that's a beautiful picture of the gospel. And the reason we get to go back again and again and again, the reason we get to stand and make declarations as to who Jesus is and take communion together for those of us that are in Christ is because you've been born out of revival. He had to die so that you could be made alive. And we get to go back. There's no shame, church, in going back to him again and again and again and again to receive his mercy and to receive his grace over and over and over. And I promise every time you go back, while we might feel ashamed or embarrassed or insecure, he just simply looks at you and says, this is exactly what I came for. Welcome back. Now go and walk in peace and righteousness. For those of you that are saints, the table is set. Feel free to partake in communion.